are listening to the Heartland Author Podcast. I am Aaron Apollo Cam. For this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Ray Hartgen. Ray is the author of the book Immaculate, How the Steelers Saved Pittsburgh, a nonfiction book about how the on-field success of the 1970s era Pittsburgh Steelers had a positive effect on Pittsburgh and western Pennsylvania during tough economic times for that area. Ray's second book, Me, Myself, and Multiple Myeloma, is slated to be published early next year. I'm here with Ray Hartgen, who is uh, the author about a uh, nonfiction book about the uh, NFL's Pittsburgh Steelers. Ray, welcome to the Heartland Author Podcast. Hey, uh, thanks for having me, Aaron. I'm looking forward to having a talk with you. Uh, Thanks so much. Feel free to introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, sure. Uh, My name is Ray Hartgen. I'm a, a writer and a musician who lives in Northern California which kind of makes it odd that my first book was about the city of Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, and uh, and also, uh, in addition to that book that was published by Morgan James uh, last December, I have a cancer patient uh, memoir coming out from Morgan James Publishing, uh, first quarter 2024. So looking forward to introducing that book too. Now, without spoiling too much of your book about the NFL's Pittsburgh Steelers, what is that book called and what is it about? Yeah, so the uh, the title of the book is Immaculate, How the Steelers Saved Pittsburgh. And uh, I co-wrote it with a good friend of mine, uh, Tom Olenek. And, and Tom is a lifelong Pittsburgher, or a Yinzer, uh, as in uh, the local lexicon. Uh, and uh, Tom, for you know 20 years or so, has bantered around this idea uh, that you know Pittsburgh had to go through a very difficult deindustrialization transformation of its economy. Uh, much like all of its Rust Belt cousins, like you know Cleveland and Detroit uh, and the like, uh, but you know as all those city, cities struggled uh, going through a, a transformation, a deindustrialization transformation, the Steelers, or excuse me, Pittsburgh, came out kind of smelling like a rose at the end of the deal. You know, for the last uh, you know twenty five years or so, Pittsburgh is uh, I call it uh, one of the most listable cities in the world because it's constantly showing up on you know most uh, livable cities in the world and so on. Uh, and uh, there are world renowned uh, leaders uh, in academia, uh, robotics, and other high tech uh, ventures, uh, healthcare, medical research, uh, and the like. And Tom's hypothesis through the entire thing was that. You know, the reason that Pittsburgh was able to succeed in a very difficult part of time, particularly, you know, around 1975 to 1985, uh, was that they could find heroes uh, in the Pittsburgh Steelers. They're a football team that up until 1972 had been fairly horrible. <laughs> and uh, but uh, but they were also built in the image of the city, hardworking, you know, bring your lunch pail to work type of uh, uh, football team. And so uh, we collaborated on this book, uh, just trying to tell the story, weaving the stories in of the history of Pittsburgh uh, the, and the history of the, the, the Steelers, tying it around those great uh, dynasty teams from, uh, from the, the 1970s, four Super Bowl championships in six years, uh, and how they kind of provided a catalyst. Uh, they provided heroes for the city uh, when they needed them at the, at the most. Did you have to get approval from the Steelers organization, the NFL, or both to write a book about the Steelers? Um, no, we didn't. It's uh, in many ways, it's just, uh, you know, much like uh, news articles. Uh, where we needed permissions was with imagery. Uh, and uh, so that uh, is actually quite expensive. 
uh, to get licenses. But those licenses aren't the, the images that we use for the book. Uh, those licenses that uh, those images that dealt with football uh, and the Steelers were images that were the property of others. Uh, the, the most uh, most of the licensed uh, photos that we had were from AP, or the Associated Press. How important are the Steelers as a cultural institution in Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania, particularly with what you mentioned uh, early on about the city undergoing a rather rocky transition away from a heavy industry-oriented economy in the later part of the 20th century? Yeah, uh, Aaron, the, uh, you know, the, I, I think, uh, you know, common to a lot of municipalities you know they uh you know there's various degrees of uh attachments uh to their sports teams uh the Steelers um are, are very much a a Pittsburgh team they've, they've only been in Pittsburgh uh they were founded in 1933 by uh Art Rooney who's a a Pittsburgher so it was it, it wasn't somebody who you know took a team from another region brought it into the city the roots of the uh of the of the entire team have lay in the city and the roots of professional football really lie within that area. Uh, the, the very first professional football players were Western Pennsylvanians. Uh, uh, two gentlemen uh, were signed to professional contracts. And, you know, in the early stages of football, kind of a, you know, when it was kind of a barnstorming regional uh, type of organization, uh, really uh, Eastern Ohio uh, and Western Pennsylvania was kind of the the hotbed of, uh, of these types of things. So there's a great infinity uh, with, uh, you know, the rough and tumble, you know, steel worker, you know, appreciating the rough and tumble nature of uh, of football, particularly professional football, you know, back to the 20s and the 30s and the Steelers came about. So the Steelers have always um, been a kind of an integral part of the team. They've they've shared the city, of course, with the successful uh, Pittsburgh Pirates baseball uh, uh, team. And then uh, more recently with the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, hockey team. But, you know, Pittsburgh is a is a sports town. Uh, they like their sports teams, and, and the Steelers have been a, a big part of it for, you know, geez, 90 years now. Uh, who were some of the Steelers' best players in the 70s where they won like four Super Bowls in six years, and what made them special? I can name about two or three of them off the top of my head. You know, there are so many ones. It's, it's kind of odd. Like, you know, I, I I was born in Houston, Texas. And I'm uh, 59 years old. I was born in 1964. So in the 70s, I was a football fan, but I was not a Steelers fan. Uh, the Steelers were kind of gum on my shoes. <laughs> As a good Texan, I was a uh, Dallas Cowboys fan, first and foremost. And the Cowboys, you know, famously lost two Super Bowls to the Steelers. My second favorite team was the Houston Oilers. I was born in Houston and like a good Texan, I supported them. But the Oilers never could get past the, the Steelers to win the division title. And they lost two playoff games to the Steelers. And my third and, and final favorite team was my mom's favorite team. And my mom's favorite team was the, the Oakland Raiders because my mom liked Kenny Stabler, just like everybody else's mom liked Kenny Stabler. Uh, and, uh, and the Raiders, you know, very famously lost three playoff games uh, to, the, uh, to the Pittsburgh Steelers and would probably have a, one or more Super Bowl championships to their name if they could have gotten by the Steelers more often. You know, so as a kid, I grew up with these players and I, I, I did not like them. But as a... As an adult, you know, I, you know, once I kind of got away from that little kid mentality and I grew to understand how special this collection of players and coaches were, right? You know, and, and those great teams of the 70s, you know, kind of started off with Mean Joe Green being drafted. Um, and, uh, you know, going back and watching so many games on YouTube, uh, I really even grew to, to 
to appreciate Mean Joe Green's presence. You know, he, from a defensive tackle position, affected every single play when he's on the field. Uh, and uh, if you are creating a top 10 list of the greatest NFL football players of all time, and he's not on your top 10 list, you probably need to go back and, and reconsider uh, some of the people that are on your top 10. He was just a, a an amazing player. You know, soon after uh, Mean Joe Green, uh, there was uh, they drafted Terry Bradshaw. Uh, Terry Bradshaw had a, a difficult time uh, getting started in the NFL. But once he did, he's four-time Super Bowl champion, two-time Super Bowl MVP. There's Franco Harris uh, coming out to Penn State in 1972 on the offensive side, uh, running back, a Hall of Famer, a wonderful human being, a wonderful ambassador uh, to the entire city of, of Pittsburgh. Also on the offensive side of the ball, you know, 1974 a draft, getting Mike Webster uh, as a, a center, uh, Lynn Swan and John Stallworth, the wide receivers. Those are three people in the Hall of Fame. They're joined in the Hall of Fame by the fourth member of that 1974 draft class. That's Jack Lambert, middle linebacker. And then the, the you know, the defensive side of the football, these great defensive teams, Jack Ham, linebacker, Andy Russell. I, you know, I can think of Mel Blunt, number 47. You know, we have a rule in the NFL now. It's called the illegal contact rule. And you're not allowed to touch a receiver after five yards in the line of scrimmage. When that rule came became implemented, it was called the Mel Blunt rule. Because Mel Blunt, he's still the prototypical cornerback in the NFL. He's tall, uh, long, uh, rangy, fast, and he would tackle with a bit of mean intentions, right? Another Hall of Famer on that team. Uh, th that team was just packed, filled with talent. And as a kid, oh, I didn't like him at all. But, you know, as an adult, grew to respect what they did. And then researching the book, just watching them play. It's a different game back then. And just, you know, the roster just filled with great players. Uh, that were coached up and put in positions to uh, to succeed. Okay. Morgan James Publishing, as you remembered, is the publisher of your book. Is Morgan James a self-publishing company, a hybrid press, a small traditional publisher, or an imprint of a bigger traditional publisher? That's a great question, Aaron. And as you know, you know, the publishing industry has kind of morphed. You know, you have your traditional uh, publishers, legacy publishers. I always use Simon Schuster as an example at one end of the spectrum. Then you have uh, a, you know, the self-publishers, what we used to call, you know, 40 years ago is vanity press, but much different uh, now. And then there's hybrid publishers. And, and in my opinion, everybody is sort of a hybrid publisher. Morgan James is uh, classified uh, by most as a unconventional traditional publisher. Uh, unconventional in the way that uh, they don't offer a very big advance uh, and uh, and they, they they were born Morgan James as uh, you know to support the the author entrepreneur um, and so when they first started in a way it was you know a bit more of a hybrid uh, a type of thing but I think you know as you know in, in talking to authors most publishing houses are kind of meeting in the middle of hybrid you know writers are responsible for promoting and marketing and selling their book uh, almost every book contract comes with a an author's obligation to to sell you know a, a, a thousand fifteen hundred two thousand books or what have you uh and, and morgan james i think was you know one of the on the forefront of of that type of hybrid publishing uh to begin with does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Now, what is the process uh, of getting a book book published through Morgan James if it's uh, if that's a publisher a particular author is considering? Yeah, you know, uh, it, it, the process is really kind of the same for a lot of them. Uh, you can go the route of an, a literary agent 
But th that's pretty difficult. And you're also having to, if, if you don't know a literary agent already, you have to pitch your book uh, to an agent and you might as well just uh, pitch it to a publisher as well. Um, publishers are interested in a, in a book proposal. Book proposals, surprisingly, you know, when I first came into this thing, I, I didn't know anything about it. When I started uh, looking into it, a great resource is uh, the Book Bible written by Susan Shapiro. Uh, you know, a, a book proposal can run over 20,000 words, which doesn't sound like a lot. But when you think about like maybe the average nonfiction book, it's maybe around 50, 60,000 words. You know, a big chunk uh, can be uh, your book proposal. Uh, and the merit of your manuscript is a significant contributor to whether you get a no uh, or go or no go decision from your publisher. But probably equally as important is who you are as an author, you know, uh, because uh, because the author is going to be responsible for taking the the bulk of the uh, promotion and marketing of the book. You know, they want to know about the social uh, 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 communities that they're involved in. You know, does an author have a podcast? You know, uh, does the author have a, a YouTube uh, channel? You know, what's their social networks look like? Can they can they you know formulate a, a bit of an army to go out back and support the book? And you know, when when you look at a giant publisher like uh, Simon and Schuster, they will print over the course of the year between fifteen thousand and twenty thousand nonfiction books. Uh, they can't promote those books. <laughs> you know, they can promote. Michelle Obama's memoir uh, or someone like that, because they know that book's going to be a big seller. But what they what they need you to do as an author is to cut through the noise of so many books coming to market. And so that's a big part of your proposal, whether it's to Morgan James or somebody else is, you know, who are you as an author? Uh, you know, what types of uh, marketing plans do you have? What what are you, the levers that you're going to push and pull upon to get the word out of, from your book uh, and to build up some enthusiasm in the marketplace? Now, you have a couple more books in the works. Without spoiling too much of those books, what what will they be called and what will they be about? Yeah, the uh, my I have a cancer patient memoir coming out. I should have books in hand in January. The e-book should land uh, in March and, and bookstores should have it in, uh, in on their shelves in July. Uh, that memoir is called Me, Myself, and My Multiple Myeloma. And uh, I'm excited about that book. For a couple of reasons, you know, uh, when I got diagnosed with multiple myeloma in March of 2019, you know, I was um, I was featured in, uh, in a couple of interviews and some and some videos and people began to reach out to me through social networks, just, you know, like asking questions, you know, newly diagnosed patients, what can I expect and, uh, and the like as I, as I go through treatment and. And I, I kept answering those and I thought, you know, a, a good thing to do might be able to, you know, write blog posts about it. And then I thought, well, if I'm writing blog posts, why don't I just put them together and, and put a book? Uh, you know, hopefully this book is a, is going to be a resource, a behind the scenes type of look at a patient going through diagnosis and treatment and how cancer has changed me. And, and uh, you know, I wanted to be a resource for patients and, and patient caregivers and, and patient allies. Uh, and I uh, also wanted to, you know, kind of get back to my community. So, you know, what I'm excited about that book is that, and I've pledged my uh, net writer's proceeds to the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation. Um, and, uh, and I also like to, to add on that, you know, the, the Immaculate book, that's also a fundraiser. Um, you know, my buddy Tom, uh, you know, had, had kicked around this book idea for a couple of decades. And, you know, finally being the writer I am, I'm like, let's do it. L let's start the book. And if we ever, if, if not now, when, you know, and, and if we ever get off track with it, reel me in but you know let's just go and let's see if i can, I can can find your vision 
you know, and, and he appreciated that gift of my writing to him. And so in turn, he wanted to give me a gift. And uh, so his gift was, you know, let's donate our writer's proceeds from Immaculate and how the Steelers saved Pittsburgh uh, to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and very specifically the Hillman Cancer Center. Uh, so, you know, that book is, uh, you know, written by a Pittsburgher for Pittsburghers. Um, and, you know, the multiple Maloma book, you know, kind of following that lead, uh, you know, I wanted to write that, you know, from the, the cancer community, uh, for the cancer community, uh, and to benefit, uh, the multiple Maloma Research Foundation. So yeah, excited to, uh, to, to have that release, uh, like I said, in Q1 and, uh, people who want to pick up paperbacks of it, uh, it'll be, I'll be, it'll, it'll be available online through me directly, uh, for a few months exclusively, uh, and then, um, available at, at, uh, booksellers around the country uh in july okay and you also have uh an, a book about the indianapolis 500 in the works is that correct i do how, how do you know about that I mean, you've been peeking into my files Aaron. uh yeah i have a i um i love the indianapolis 500 and it started um because of my love for books and teachers um wanting to uh, uh to, to have us fall in love with books and very specifically, there's the Scholastic uh, America little catalog, that kind of like newspaper thing. I, you're probably familiar with it, uh, but certainly anybody my age is that familiar. That was many years ago. That was like That's when it. I was like in the, I think I was like in the like the sixth grade the last time I had one. Absolutely. It's a it's an elementary school staple, right? And, uh, you know, one one day I'm going through the catalog and I see a, a book written by Hal, um, Hal Heatham, I think his name is, and it's called the Indy 500 30 Days in May. And I'm like, oh, this sounds cool. You know, it's, you know, and I get, and it was a, a diary, the 1970 race. And I read and reread that book a lot. I've probably read it 25 times. Uh, and that started my, my love affair with the Indianapolis 500. And, uh, and what I wanted to do is, is like update that book. I wanted to write a daily diary about the Indianapolis 500. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm writing a sort of a daily diary, not of the 1970 race, but of the 2024 race in the 108th running of the Indianapolis 500. Uh, so I haven't sold that one in yet. Um, it's uh, It has started because in, in my mind, the, the start of next year's race really begins with the end of this year's race. Uh, but uh, I have not, uh, have not sold it to uh, Morgan James or anybody else. So if you're a publisher out there and you're interested, you can contact me through Aaron. <laughs> now, uh, you mentioned uh, you're writing a book about your battle with the multiple myeloma. What is it like to battle multiple myeloma? And I imagine it can't be good. You know, it's uh, it, there, there are good days and there are bad days. Sometimes it can be tough. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with multiple myeloma, it's a blood cancer. Uh, it's incurable, uh, but it is treatable. And in many ways, it can be uh, manageable. Uh, so it all, you know, depending on the, the type of multiple myeloma you have, every patient's a little bit different. I think that's where the multiple uh, comes from. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, for me, I, I went through a stem cell transplant process in uh, October, November of 2019. Uh, that dealt with an awful lot of chemotherapy. Uh, it's rough kind of getting through chemotherapy. But I'm on a maintenance schedule now. I get uh, an immunotherapy uh, injection once every two weeks. I take a chemotherapy pill uh, daily, uh, three day, three weeks on, uh, two weeks off. But I got to tell you, you know, Aaron, you know, for me, you know, I, I can go in and get my chemo treatments every two weeks, uh, abdomen uh, injection, my abdomen. You know, I'm I'm typically in and out within an hour. Um, but there are people there, you know, battling in the infusion chairs, you know, battling uh, other cancers. They're in there for eight hours. You know, uh, there's, there's some people in my cancer support group there, you know, with their therapies 
30 hours of chemotherapy and actually take it home in a pump uh, and uh, and then come back the next day. So, uh, you know, I'm not complaining about the things that I got to go through. We all get something. Uh, it takes a village. Uh, I, I appreciate you asking, you know, the, the cancer is a, a difficult diagnosis. You know, when I first got diagnosed, I thought about it all the time. The, you know, the moment I woke up, I thought about cancer and seconds before I fell asleep at night, I thought about cancer and I thought about cancer a lot in between. Uh, but, you know, I've gotten to the point now where, you know, I, I take my meds in the morning and I think about that, uh, but it, it, it tends not to be a, a thing that I dwell on. I'm doing well, I feel good uh, uh, and uh, I'm feeling strong. Uh, and, uh, you know, cancer has taught me an awful lot. Uh, you know, sometimes patients, uh, you know, view cancer as taking things away from them. And cancer does take some things away uh, and you have to change the way, you know, your outlook on some stuff. But, you know, I, before cancer, I was... Um, you know, a bandmate and a, and a boss and a teammate and a father and a husband, a brother, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I still have each and every one of those roles uh, and all the accountabilities I have with those roles and all the goals I want to achieve within those roles. But now I have more, you know, cancer is actually given to me, um, you know, more roles. I'm a, and now I'm a patient. I'm a patient advocate. I'm an advocate for patient caregivers. I'm a fundraiser. Uh, and uh, th those have, you know, accountabilities associated with those roles and goals and aspirations I have uh, related to those uh, roles and accountabilities. So, yeah, you know, cancer is, uh, yeah, I, I, all in all, I'd rather not have been diagnosed, uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't get to choose that. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, what's, you know, how, how can I make the best of it? You know, how can I raise awareness? How can I get people to go to their doctor uh, and get an early diagnosis of whatever ailment uh, that they have uh, so that they can uh, live their lives more uh, productively, more, more fruitfully and more healthily? My final question, what tips do you have for aspiring writers? I have a, a lot of tips uh, and I'm glad you asked that question, Aaron, and, uh, and hopefully it won't take too long. Uh, I know a lot of people who want to be a writer and I tell them just write. Uh, and one of the very impactful things that I've read over the last handful of years is again, relating to that, that Susan Shapiro book, the book Bible. Uh, she's an author, uh, but she was whining one day uh, to one of her family members about writer's block. And uh, the person she was whining to happens to be a writer that's also in her family. And he told her, and I'm paraphrasing, he told her, don't get all self-indulgent with this writer's block thing uh, because plumbers don't get plumber's block. Plumbers just plumb. Writers need to write. And, you know, as a writer, don't get hung up on the fact that, geez, I don't have the time for, to write. I don't, uh, I, you know, I don't have, the, I don't have, I, I can't write up, you know, War and Peace in, in an hour or whatever. Well, of course you can. You don't need to either. And you shouldn't. You shouldn't sit down and write 2,500 words. Uh, if you just sit down at a, a certain time of the day and write 250 to 500 words, within a half a year, you're going to have a book done. And, uh, and so, you know, first tip to writers is write. You, you have to write. If you're not writing, you're not a writer. You're, oh, you want to be a writer, but if you are a writer, write. Find the time to write. It doesn't have to be a lot. Do 250, 500 words a day, and you've got a, a, a compelling chapter within a, within a couple of days. If you have a, you know, a, com a, com a compelling act of your book in a, a month, and within a half year, you have a book. Uh, a second tip I give a publisher or get to give um, writers is that publishing takes a long time. <laughs> you know, most publishers like to have an eight to 18 month uh, ramp uh, to delivery because they have to, you know, 
get the distribution deal with Ingram or whatever distribution. They need their sales teams to go out uh, and present the book to to book uh, uh, sellers, uh, and it, it takes a, a long time to do it. It's a it's a, a process that I've learned a lot about. Interior design, for example, for a book, I thought my words were the interior design. That's not the case at all. An interior design takes a couple of weeks, and then going back and forth if, if there's any changes, that, that takes another couple of weeks. It's a month for an interior design. It takes longer, literally, for the interior design than the cover design. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you've if you got a, an idea for when you want a book published, uh, you know, keep in mind it's an eight to eighteen month uh, type of process, even if you self-publish. Uh, and then, uh, you know, of course, what we have talked about, Aaron, be prepared to promote and market your book. Uh, if you don't do it, no one else will. Uh, I think that's a, a, an important consideration uh, for folks. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you build that book proposal um, and, um, you know, look at what how you play a role in that. You know, do, do you have a podcast? Do, do you have a YouTube channel? Do, do you have a, a Facebook account and Instagram and all that? Um, you know, how can you um, how can you build up an, a, an audience and a network for people who are, are going to be excited to, to to see your book come out? Ray, you were a very insightful guest for this podcast, and I thank you for appearing on the Heartland Author Podcast. It's my pleasure, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I, I appreciate it. I hope your uh, I hope your uh, audience uh, digs it, and uh, you know, I also like to encourage them through your to you know how you play this out on on YouTube and the like. You know, if there's if there's questions uh, from the audience, please just uh, at mention me. Uh, so I'm aware of it, and I'll be happy to answer uh, any questions uh, anyone might have. And I appreciate it again, Aaron, uh, for, for having me on. Thank you. This episode is dedicated in memory of legendary Steelers running back Franco Harris, who passed away one year ago to the day this episode was uploaded. This is Aaron Apollo Camp reminding y'all to write your imagination. Bye for now. You can learn more about me and my book writing projects at camparenapollo.witsite.com forward slash author AAC. You can follow me on Facebook at author AAC and on Instagram at AAC Scribe. Copyright 2023, Aaron Apollo Camp, all rights reserved. This podcast episode is intended for the private listening of our audience. Any reuse or retransmission of this podcast episode without the express written consent of the podcast host is prohibited, except under fair use guidelines. Royalty-free music and sound effects obtained from https colon forward slash forward slash www.zapsplat.com.